Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zaffert. Tracy Farber is a clinical psychologist in private practice. She has just completed her PhD on the topic, Integrity versus Despair, the Experience of Child Holocaust Survivors. Her research is on the long-term impact of trauma on Holocaust survivors. Tracy, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. And also just to say muzzle tov on putting in your PhD. It's been, a, it's been a long job and I imagine it's been emotionally quite draining for you to do as well. Yes, it's been, it's been, it has been draining and moving and extremely rewarding and difficult and wonderful all at the same time. And so it did take me a long time to complete. I've recently submitted it and the professors are busy marking it as we speak. So the degree hasn't been awarded, but hopefully it will be soon. I'm sure I'm not being uh, uh, you know, optimistic when I say muzzle tov. I'm sure oh, you'll get it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Tracy, there's so much to talk about, but I think I want to start off by telling you about my encounter with a Holocaust survivor many years ago, and she was very, very old at the time, and she subsequently passed on. And she took my hand in hers, and she said to me, Lovey, I, rem- I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, but every second of the day I'm in Auschwitz. Oh, shame. And that has stuck mm. with me, and I just wonder to what extent is that typical of the kinds of things you found in your research? Okay. So let me start off by saying the most important thing to know is that there are lots of different kinds of Holocaust survivors and that they were all affected very differently by the Holocaust because of their own individual personalities, natures, their history, their early family life and the whole psychological picture that they came from and also what they went through in the camps. So we have many different kinds of survivors and of course we have to generalize for specific reasons the kind of survivor that you're describing is somebody who is severely traumatized and this does happen with a large amount of the survivors who we know suffer from bad post-traumatic stress and depression and the kind that you're describing from what I can hear She's obviously gone through a, a level of memory loss, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but what hasn't left her are the memories of the camps, the memory of the loss, the memory of the trauma. And sadly, there are lots of Holocaust survivors like her living at this point in history where they are struggling still with the trauma that hasn't left them and the loss that hasn't left them 70 years plus onwards. As a psychologist, can... Help? Can you help survivors now, bearing in mind all this time that they've had for the trauma? To uh, the trauma doesn't go away; it's never going to sure, go away. Sure. To cope with the trauma, let's put yes. it that way. Yes, yes, definitely. Yes, I'm not saying every single survivor because there are different kinds of support that are needed. So I don't think it's just psychotherapy. But we know that, for example, in Israel and certainly in America, there's an organization called Amcha, which which has was established in the 80s, and it aims at treating Holocaust survivors with psychotherapy, Holocaust survivors and second generation. And what we know, not just with survivors, but with survivors of all trauma, is that keeping the trauma inside, not talking about it to anybody, really intensifies the depression and the post-traumatic stress disorder. So 
the talking about the trauma, not just in this case, but in any case, it is never too late. In fact, um, I was talking to one of my colleagues in Israel at the moment who's doing research on how the Holocaust, on how Holocaust survivors are benefiting from psychotherapy. His name is Professor Danny Brahm, and he's a trauma specialist. And he mentioned to me that they're putting together research as, you know, as we speak about it. Um, what I'd like to say is that some of the survivors are very deeply depressed and also need psychiatric medication for depression or post-traumatic stress. We know that as people get older, their tendency to be depressed is is higher. And so um, I think that for any person, it's never too late because I think that the experience of talking about a trauma and having the trauma understood is a profound one, a profound release. And then what I'd also like to say is that we know from neuro, from neuroscience that when people talk about the trauma, it helps the brain to heal. Um, one survivor, you know, Yom HaShoah is traditionally when the Jewish Board of Deputies bring out um, survivors or guests or not even bring them out, have them. And one of them came out and he could talk about the Holocaust. He could talk about his experiences. What he couldn't talk about is exactly what he did during the Holocaust. Is there degrees of being able, at some point, is it not okay just to say there's certain things I cannot and will not talk about because it brings up too harsh a memory? Yes. I think that we have to respect anybody, whether it be a Holocaust survivor, a Rwandan survivor, a survivor of apartheid, of the apartheid regime, where there was torture, where there there was guilt, where there's all kinds of things. And I've learned very much as a therapist to respect people's boundaries and respect people's defenses. So everybody knows their limitation and one never pushes somebody beyond that. And in terms of um, coping methods, you know, you spoke about every every survivor is obviously different. They had different experiences, different backgrounds. Are there certain coping mechanisms that help anybody irrespective? Yes. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about it. We know that when there is a supportive environment after trauma, it, it helps people recover much quicker. This was found by a Dutch psychiatrist named Kielsen in 1973. He looked at a whole lot of survivors, and he found that even those who'd had terrible experiences during the Holocaust, when, they'd given, when they were given a lot of social support after the Holocaust, it helped them to heal better. And I think this is a strong message for all of us. In my research, I also found that survivors who had lots of support in the community after the Holocaust, those who had good experiences when they came to South Africa, managed better. And it's a message to all of us that no one can cope with trauma alone and that when we know about traumatized people, to try and reach out to them as much as possible, however we can. And, of course, I don't just mean as a psychologist or listening to their story, but showing up, arriving, bringing food, showing support, all these things help traumatize people immensely. Tracy, we know so much more now than we did then, and there are phases that are subsequent to the Holocaust. And we're looking at 60, 70 years ago, and initially people didn't want to hear the stories yes. of Holocaust survivors or they were embarrassed, kind of victim mentality. Yes. Um, are those all like part of the healing? Are they normal, natural parts that people have to go through? Or had the healing started earlier, would they be less traumatized now? 
Well, it's an interesting question that you ask, Sharice, because we also have to look at psychology and we also have to look at the whole global history um, of what happened. If we look at the Holocaust, it happened between 39 and 45. At that stage, psychology and trauma work is not as developed as it is today. We had Freud and... Um, Melanie Klein, who was just beginning, and, and they were talking a little bit about psychoanalysis in the, in those days. So from that point of view, our knowledge about trauma and certainly psychology as a profession wasn't really developed so much. So in fact, what happened was the survivors emerged from the camps. They were completely traumatized. And the, 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 the mental health community was not really equipped to manage them and couldn't really cope with hearing what they'd been through. And so we call that the conspiracy of silence. Mm. And in fact, what happened was when they understood Vietnam veterans in, in, in the 60s and 70s, they saw lots of similarities to Holocaust survivors and what they'd been through, and they started to identify the post-traumatic stress for all the groups. And then really it was only in the 80s that AMCHA was formed, that Spielberg had a huge effect in basically opening up the pain. And the kind of kind of central issue that, that I want to just say is that when people came out of the Holocaust, their central focus was still on survival. Yes. They had to make money, they had to live, they had to feed themselves and their children. And so trauma was pushed very much to the background. So if we're looking at, for example, a Rwandan survivor now or even the Syrian survivors and what's going on then, what happens with people is that they go into a very rigid state of trauma and they can't start processing while they're still trying to survive. Right. So it was it was very much a case of survival. Um the characteristics that you develop um when you're trying to survive and I, I'm making this one up but I imagine it could be true like food hoarding. Yes. Does that ever stop? Do, do you ever find that a, a survivor is now relatively well off but will still Make sure for just in case. Yes. And also, how does that affect second and third generation Jewish yes. people who yes. feel yes. a connection? Yes. Well, it's an interesting question from the point of view that they, all of them are very, very different. Yeah. You know, I mean, I met a survivor who, who described the most terrible starvation that he went through and I looked at him. He wasn't one bit overweight and he had quite a healthy relationship with food. He said to me he didn't like to overeat because after the Holocaust, mm -hmm. he saw a whole lot of people who overate on chips that were brought in by the British and died from overeating. Right. So everybody's got a different mm -hmm. relationship. So he didn't have a food thing, but he had very bad traumatic stress from another direction. So yes, to, to address the issue, there are some people that hoarders and can't throw away. I had one survivor who couldn't. She said she would even feed breadcrumbs to, to birds. Rather than was, throw food away. Yes, and, and, and what was interesting was that her son, who I met in a different context, and of course my survivors in my study are anonymous, so that's why I'm able to speak about it so freely. He said to me that he, he felt that his mother's economy of giving love was food. Yeah. And that if he refused food from her, she would get very, very upset because it was her way of giving love. So the whole connection with food is very interesting. And does it affect third generation 
Oh, we want to get back to second generation. Okay. I'm just wondering specifically third generation. You know. Um, you, you know, I think that it definitely does. And, of course, there are all kinds of arguments and debates in the literature. But I think if you look at the way second generation are affected by the Holocaust and you have a parent that's second generation, then, yes, it does go through. But I want to make a very clear point, and that is that we're talking about trauma being transmitted, but that's very different about having a capacity to love because – a lot of the survivors had early histories, which was what I asked about, where they did receive a lot of love. And we all know there are many survivors with an incredible capacity to give love. That was not killed. Right. You know, that in, is in the Holocaust. That is an important point to make. Yes, it is important because it shows resilience. And we also know that those children who had an early life where they received a lot of love from their parents were badly affected by the trauma, but they had a level of resilience where they held on to hope and they coped much better after the Holocaust. Guilt. Do Holocaust survivors suffer guilt? And or what, what, what would that be dependent on? Guilt for they, they having survived and not the six million who didn't. Again, I did ask about guilt and very different responses very different responses compared to per, to different kinds of personalities. Some had more survival guilt than others. What I found is that, for example, one woman had intense survival guilt, and that was because she had a brother who was 10 months younger than her, who she was very attached to, and he died, and she didn't. And she carried the survival guilt. And what can happen is that survivor guilt can then become such a, a tormenting mm. experience that the Holocaust survivor feels like it's difficult for them to enjoy life and enjoy pleasure and be happy because of the all the people, you know, because of the survival guilt. So it is very different with with everybody. And religion. I'm sure it would be similarly different for everybody, but I know religion is one of the things that you looked at. Yes. Can you share? Yes, sure. I think that it is a very sensitive topic. Um, and what I found was a whole range from one person who told me she felt like she'd been saved by Hashem and it was an absolute miracle that she was saved. She wasn't religious, by the way. But there are people like that. We read about Rabbi Laub and what he went through in the camps, ranging from those who felt they were upset or disappointed or angry with Hashem, ranging to atheists who said they were atheists, but when you actually dug around, you could hear they were actually very upset and with God, and that was their way of distancing themselves. What I would like to say very clearly is that this is very common, a response of people who severely traumatized. In my work as a psychotherapist, I've worked with many parents who've lost children and they are in such a state of despair about why me and am I being punished. And some of them feel an enormous amount of pain and anger. And my, I think what's so important for all of us is that we can't judge other people. And when they say that they're angry with God or they're disappointed or they're atheists, to try and listen with compassion and reach out to them and to understand that it's because of their loss and it's because of a catastrophic sense of grief and trauma that they carry. And it's a very difficult pain for people because it isolates them, often people who've been through trauma, including Holocaust survivors, feel ashamed to talk about that. Tracy, 20 minutes was never going to be enough for us to even begin <laughs> to
to touch the topic, I just want to go through the things that we haven't even discussed, including second-generation trauma, including what your research will go towards now, and I know you in contact with the Holocaust Centers, including things such as how it impacts on your work today as a psychologist and how it can impact on others. I know you give talks to the community. There, as I said, is so much we haven't yet delved into, and I'm sorry about that. Maybe you'd like to give a contact number that anybody who would like to contact you can do so, and maybe we can carry on this conversation in the new year. Sure. I'd be very happy, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come in. It's very meaningful for me to talk about the work. Um, I, I will give my number. It's 082-341-7978. Anybody who has any questions or wants to discuss my research further is welcome. I, I mean, I know I do, but uh, I'll have to wait until new, until the new year. Anyway, again, Mazeltov, I'm completing your PhD. And it's, you know, that, that's the other topic, your trauma. How do you debrief? But we have to leave it there. Tracy, um, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you for thank coming in. Thank you for in. having me. Um, that was Tracy Farber, who's a clinical psychologist, and she's just completed her PhD on the topic integrity versus despair. 